We're in Romans chapter 5 tonight. And we had a great time at youth conference. First of all, I just want to praise God for that. Uh, we, we had a really good time. Uh, we had a good time with the teenagers. I, if nothing else, uh, Gabby and I were really able to connect with the teenagers in a way that we really hadn't been able to before. Uh, when you spend that much time with somebody, I guess that, that tends to happen. So we, we spent a lot of time uh, with the teens this week. We connected with them super well. We, we were able to have conversations with them. It was a really good week. Uh, but on our way down there, we noticed that the bus was starting to get kind of hot, as Pastor mentioned this morning, and the air wasn't working as well as we were hoping it would uh, on our trip down there. And it was like the kind of heat where, like, you try to take a nap and you have to wake up and wring out your pillow, like that kind of nap. Like, it was disgusting. It was gross. The whole way down, everybody was sweaty. It was awful. So we get down there and we decided we're going we're gonna to try to make the trip back at nighttime. So we were going to leave Thursday night, we were going to drive back up, and we were going to get here uh, at, in Brookings around 10 o'clock Friday morning. And so we did, and it worked out really well. It wasn't as hot. It was kind of a pain driving through the night, uh, but I don't know why I'm complaining because I only had to drive two hours of it. Pastor drove the rest. So we, we got back here, though, and obviously... All of us were tired. We're all exhausted. So we get back. The teenagers, they go home. And so Gabby and I, we, we start making our way back to, back to our house. And on our way back, I was driving down 6th Street, and I turn onto Western Avenue where the bowling alley is. And uh, I see this car that's, like, tailgating me super close behind me. And I was like, man, what is this guy doing? And all of a sudden, I see, like, these really pretty, like, red and blue lights uh, flashing behind me and I was like man come on so I pull into the bowling alley and uh and like you know that feeling when you were like six where your mom caught you doing something that you weren't supposed to and like your stomach like dropped to the floor that's kind of how I felt I was man like this is the worst just got back from Oklahoma and now I'm getting pulled over so I pull into the bowling alley the police officer comes up and uh he he does the whole thing like we do you know you know what it's like well most of you know what it's like and so he comes up to the door, asks for my license and registration and my insurance. I give it to him. And then he says, all right, come back to my car and sit in my passenger seat while we, while we go through this thing. And I'm like, okay. So we go back to the car. And, and for some reason, I don't know if this has happened to you guys, but the police officer, he begins to try to make small talk with me. And that's not a good time to try to make small talk with somebody, like, at all. Like, I'm nervous. My voice is shaky because this is my first time ever getting pulled over. And I tried to, like, play it off like I had been there before, but I really hadn't. Like, I, I had no idea what I was doing. And a police officer, he asks me, like, hey, well, well, what do you do for a living? And when you're a pastor and you get pulled over and the police officer asks you what you do for a living, you don't want to say I'm a pastor. Like, that's, like, the last thing. Or if you do say I'm a pastor, you say I'm a pastor from a different church. Like, that's, you don't want to say you're a pastor from the church you're at. No, I, I told him, I was like, I'm a youth pastor and uh, I would go to Bible Baptist Church. And uh, so then he asks me where I was coming from, and I said we were coming home from a youth conference, and we just we, we got back. And after we had talked for like five minutes, the police officer looks at me and says the words that I was ready and so, so willing to hear. He looks at me and says, well, today I'm just going to let you off with a warning. And I was so relieved. I thought I was going to get a ticket. I thought I, w I was like going to have to pay like you know, so much money for this ticket. But he says, you know what? I'm just going to let you off for a warning or with a warning. And the reason that I was so relieved is because I knew what I deserved. See, the, the reason I was so relieved to get a warning, I could have looked at him and be like, man, really? You're going to give me a warning that still goes on my license? Like what? No, like that would have been really ridiculous for me to tell him that. But I was relieved because I knew I deserved a ticket. I knew that I was guilty. I knew I had done something wrong. And yet he let me off with the warning. And I was relieved because I knew what I deserved. 
So one of the reasons that we end up in this victim mentality oftentimes is because we're not willing to acknowledge what we actually deserve. It's, it's much easier for us to, to blame other people for our sin. It's much easier for us to point the finger at somebody else and blame them for, for the things that we have done because we don't want to admit what we deserve. The reason we blame others for our sins is because we don't like to admit that we're sinners. It's much easier for us to say, hey, I'm insecure because she, or or, I'm angry because he, or or, I struggle with lust because of this person. It's much easier for us to point our finger rather than just admitting, hey, I'm guilty before a holy God. Like what I deserve is spending eternity forever separated from God in hell. That is what I deserve. I am guilty. So the first step in our journey from Genesis 3 to Psalm 51, our first step is acknowledging that we're guilty. Acknowledging that we are sinners, that we deserve to spend forever separated from God, but it's because of his grace that we don't have to. Romans was written by a guy named Paul. Most of us know who Paul was. Paul, he was converted on the road to Damascus. He, he, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus as he, he was a really evil man. He was persecuting Christians. He would kill Christians for a living. That was his job. He, he did that. And on the road to Damascus, he, he, he admitted that he was guilty. And so he began a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so then Paul, he becomes one of the greatest Christians to ever live. And he begins to travel and write letters to different churches in the first century. And one of those letters we call the book of Romans. And the Church of Rome was a really interesting church. It was really separated between two different groups of people. There was a bunch of Jewish people there, and then there was also a bunch of Gentile people there. And so because of that, that division, that, that kind of uh, cultural division there, there began to be this really big uh, division in the church. Because, and we, and we read through this as we're, as we're reading through Romans, we kind of learn that the, the church was very divided because the Jewish people, they were coming in and saying, hey, the Gentiles, like, you guys need to eat kosher. You need to follow the Jewish traditions. Uh, you need to be circumcised. You need to do all of this stuff if you want to follow Jesus. And the Gentiles were like, no, like, Jesus never talked about that. He never even mentioned those things when he was talking about being a part of his kingdom. So, so we're not going to do those things. That's not what Jesus taught. And so there was this arguing going back and forth. And what Paul does is really interesting. In the midst of this division, to try to fix the division, he writes one of the greatest and in-depth explanations of the gospel in history. He writes the book of Romans, which is interesting because the church was divided. And most of us would say, man, they need somebody to go and preach to them. They need somebody to, they need somebody, they just need to like sit down and talk over a meal. But what Paul does is he writes an in-depth explanation of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel brings unity. That's what it does. And so in, in Romans 1 through 4, what Paul's doing is he's explaining that we're all sinners, that we're all guilty. That when we stand before God, not a single one of us are innocent. That we've all broken God's law. That, that we are evil. And that, that God had to send his son to die for us. And we all, he also explains that through the gospel, we can see God's righteousness because he can't even be close to sin. And then we get to Romans 5, and Paul begins to explain how the gospel doesn't just change our eternity, but the gospel changes our lives. He explains, he begins to explain in chapter 5 how the gospel will change you from the inside out, about how it makes you a new person uh, along with the Holy Spirit. And so he begins to talk about this, and he talks about this from Romans 5 to Romans 8. But in in Romans 5, the beginning of the the first four verses, 
he explains something that's really interesting. He, he explains that it's because of the gospel that we have peace with God. And that allows us to, to glory, to praise, to be happy during tribulations, during the difficult times of life. Why? Because we know that when this life ends, we get to spend eternity with God in, in heaven. Like we, we get to be with him forever. And so that's why we get to glory in our tribulations. And he explains that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel in difficult times, but we can own it because the Holy Spirit shows us the love of God within our hearts. And that's where we pick up in verse number six. So if you have your Bible with me, that's where we're going to start reading verse number six in Romans chapter five. He says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet preadventure for a good man, some would even dare die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. See, I really believe that in order to figure out, or in order to admit that we're guilty, we have to first understand who we are. We have to understand who we are without Jesus, and we have to understand who we are with Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at, at three aspects of who we are as human beings. And the first aspect that I see is in verse number six. So look with me. It says, for when we were yet without strength. You know what that tells me? We weren't good enough. You know, you hear it all the time today that like, hey, you're good enough the way you are. You're fine. You're perfect the way you are. But really the Bible teaches something completely different. In this passage, he says, when we were yet without strength, it means that we were not good enough. Uh, this week when we were at youth conference, we ended up getting an Airbnb because we couldn't stay on campus this week. And when you're staying with a bunch of high school guys and girls in an Airbnb and they're all together, the guys stayed up or the girls stayed upstairs, the guys stayed downstairs. It got really interesting sometimes because the guys decided that they were going to go into the living room and have a wrestling match. Uh, and that was really interesting. But it was funny to watch because none of them wanted to admit how weak they were. Like, like we told them, like, if you, want this, you, if you want this pain to stop, you have to tap out. Like, tap their shoulder, tap the floor. You have to do something to let them know, hey, I don't want to experience this anymore. And, and so some of these guys, they would rather die than tap out. I mean, their faces were turning blue. They were, their faces were red. They were, like, choking. And I was like, like, dude, you have to tap out. If you don't tap out, you are going to die. Like, you, like this is going to happen. And they don't want to admit how weak they are. That's why they didn't want to tap out. And us as human beings, we don't like to admit how weak we are but we are. Like this verse tells us that when we were yet without strength, that means that we were completely powerless to do anything about our eternity. We, we couldn't do anything to get ourselves into heaven. We, we couldn't deliver ourselves from punishment. We were not going to die and stand before God and fight our way through him to get into heaven. We were not going to go and spend some time in hell and then be able to climb ourselves out. We were yet without strength. We were completely powerless. We were unable to save ourselves. We were unable to do anything good in order to get ourselves into heaven. We were unable to make ourselves righteous. We were completely and totally inadequate. We were yet without strength. And I think sometimes we forget this. I think sometimes we think that we did this whole thing on our own. 
Like, we would never say it. We understand, like, mentally that Jesus came down to this earth, that he lived 33 years, that he died on a cross, that he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross, and then rose again from the dead to prove that he was God. He conquered death. He conquered hell. And if you put your faith in him, that you can have an eternity with God in heaven. Like, we know that here. But then we say things like, if it wasn't for that person, I wouldn't struggle with this. Like, if my husband would just meet my needs, if he was more affectionate, then, then I wouldn't struggle with X, Y, and Z. Like, if my kids weren't so annoying, I wouldn't be such an angry father. If my parents weren't so strict, then I wouldn't struggle with rebellion. If my wife would meet my needs, then I wouldn't have to run to porn. And we act like it, we would be perfectly fine if, if nobody else existed. But friends, in Romans chapter 5, what Paul is trying to tell us is that if nobody else existed, if you were the only person in the world, you would still be without strength. We couldn't do it. We were completely and totally inadequate. And I think a lot of times our victim mentality comes from a place of not acknowledging that without Jesus, you're nothing. You have no hope. You have no help. You have no eternal security. You're without strength. And some of us, we, we walk around, and I'm guilty of this just as much as anybody else, but we act like we're, we're God's gift we're God's gift to the church. And we act like God, would be, God is lucky that he saved us. But we were without strength. Completely powerless. But not only were we not good enough, not, not only were we not able to do enough good, but Paul takes it a step further. And he says that we were evil. Look at what he says in, in verse number six. Look at how he describes this. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, can you imagine <laughs> if you're a Jewish person and you're reading this for the first time, you're reading this letter and you're like, man, yeah, like, yeah we're all sinners and, and we're, you know, we're all this. And then when you get to chapter five, he says that you're ungodly. And you're a Jewish person, you're like, hold up a second, hang on. Like, I have obeyed the, the, the law from my youth. I, I, I've memorized the Torah, like the first five books of the Bible. I've memorized it. They're all up here. I can quote it off the dome. I, I can, I, I've, 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 I've ate a kosher diet my whole life. Never even touched pork. Like, I've, I've, I've tried to obey the 613 laws in the Old Testament. I've done all the stuff that Jewish people are supposed to do. But then God says you're ungodly. One commentator described the word ungodly as having character so far from meriting any interposition in their belief. And then he says they were altogether repulsive to the eye of God. That's not how Paul describes just this church. That's how Paul describes every single one of us. Altogether repulsive to the eye of God. Like, we're, we're disgusting. It's, it's gross. Our sin is absolutely gross. And then he uses an example. Look at verse number seven. He says, for scarcely a righteous man will one die. 
So, so Paul says, hey, for, for a righteous man, so somebody who has never done anything wrong, somebody who's morally perfect, they've never wronged anyone, they've never thought a bad thought, like they were a completely righteous person, he says some people might die for him. And he's exactly right. Like, look at Jesus. Jesus was the, 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 the most perfect man to ever live. He never did anything wrong, never sinned because he was God in the flesh. And yet when people were faced with death, like look at Peter, we talked about him last week in Sunday morning. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to die for him. He says only some people would die for a righteous man. And then he says this, look back at verse number seven, yet pre-adventure for a good man, some would even dare die. So, so Paul says, hey, you have this righteous man, some people might die for him. Then you have a good man, so, so he's not perfect, he's done some wrong in his life, but overall he's a pretty good guy. He says, some people might even die for him. Less than the righteous man, but some people would even die for a good man. And then look what he says in verse number eight. But God commendeth, that means showed, he demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, sinners. I don't think we get the weightiness of that word. It means, it, it, it was really an archery term in, in the first century. And what it meant was for someone to take aim at a target and miss it. To, to miss the mark. That's what we did. We have the mark of God's law, perfection, and we didn't even get the target. We missed it. We're sinners, lovers of ourselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, untrustworthy, liars, discontent, angry, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. That's who we are. We're evil. So when we say that we would be less sinful if it wasn't for that person, it's not true. Because the, the Bible tells us later, like just a couple verses down in Romans 5.12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so pa death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Like, you, weren't, you didn't become a sinner when somebody else sinned against you, and you decided to respond in anger. You became a sinner the moment that you took your first breath. You were born. Somebody else didn't make you a sinner. You were born a sinner. It's who you are. In September of 2012, I read an article this week. And in September of 2012, there was a man. His name was Harold Henthorne. And in 2012, Harold Henthorne decided he was going to take his wife, Tony to Rocky Mountain State Park for their, for their, uh, for their anniversary. And so they took... There's trip, they, they didn't bring anybody with them, none of the kids, and they went to Rocky Mountain State Park and they're hiking, they're, they're doing all the stuff that you do on an anniversary trip. So they're, they're hiking, they're taking pictures, they're just having a good time. And one of the days we were there, a call came in to the 911 dispatch, and it was Harold. And he explained to the 911 dispatch, as he's like freaking out, he's screaming, and he says, my wife, she fell off a cliff and she landed. She's not moving. She's unresponsive. And I don't know how to get down to her. And so they send first responders. They get there. They get down to Tony. And when they find her, she's dead. I can't imagine. 
what that must have been. So detectives start working this case and they, they start to look into it a little more and they realize that there's just some inconsistencies in Harold's story. And in December of 2015, Harold Henthorne was given a mandatory life sentence for the murder of his wife. They claimed that he had pushed her off the cliff to get out of a, in a marriage that was failing, so he pushed her and killed her. What's interesting is if you go to that prison today, because someone did this pretty re recently. If you go to that prison today and you ask Harold Henthorne, did you kill your wife? His answer would be no. He would say, I did not kill my wife. So in his case, there's one of two options. Either Harold Henthorne is receiving justice for what he did. Or he's a victim to a flawed justice system. And the only thing drawing that line is whether he's guilty or not. See, you can't be a victim if you're guilty. If you are guilty, then you cannot be a victim. And the thing is, is some of us have been wronged in ways that I could never imagine. Like some of you, you have, you have abuse in your past. You, you, have, you have people who wronged you, who, you, who you trusted. Like they were supposed to care for you and they wronged you, they hurt you. You have these different stories in your past. And I am not saying, please hear this. I am not saying that you deserved it. I'm not saying that you had it coming. I'm not saying that anything that happened to you, you deserved. What I am saying is that every single person in this room deserved much worse than what could have been, than what could have been done to them. Like the Bible tells us every single one of us deserve to spend forever separated from God in hell. That's what we deserve. We deserve to, to be in agony for all of eternity because we have wronged God in ways that no one could ever wrong us. We're guilty because we're evil. You sinned against a holy God. And that God could have said, you know what? They hurt me. Like the moment that that happened in Genesis 3, where, where Adam took of the fruit, or Eve took of the fruit, gave it to Adam, Adam ate of the fruit. The moment that that happened, God could have been like, nope, I'm done. Like I gave an option, they chose the wrong side, and so now you're on your own, you're going to spend eternity in hell, I'm not helping you at all, like you hurt me, I trusted you, we were supposed to have a relationship, now that relationship is broken because of what you did, and so I'm get, like, he could have destroyed us, he could have gotten rid of us, he could have made it so that we were going to spend eternity separated from him in hell, but he didn't. He commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinning, he died for us. The reason that we're not able to live in victimhood is because we realize that we're guilty and deserving of much worse. But praise God, even though we weren't good enough. Remember, this is who we are. We're not good enough. And we're evil. But in verse 9, we see that we're paid for. Look at verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
the only reason that you would know what the word justified means is kind of if you grew up in church your whole life, because it's not a word that we use too often, but it's really a legal term. It means for, for your account, for your record to be cleared. And so you had all this sin in your past. You had all of this stuff, all of this baggage that you were bringing into this relationship with God, and you had all of this, you had, you had failed him over and over again. You had lied, you had stolen, you had cheated, you had wanted things that weren't yours. That's called coveting. You, you had done all of this stuff to break God's law. And so now you were doomed to spend eternity in hell, and you were entering this relationship with God. And so what God did was he sent Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, and when you put your faith in him, he clears that record. Think about that. Every sin that you have done, are doing, or will ever do was paid for Jesus on the cross. How? Through his blood. The Bible says in first, or 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us. God turned Jesus into our sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know what that means? When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that's it. It's because of Jesus that we're able to stand before the throne of God and he's able to declare us not guilty. Even though we are. Like, I'm guilty. I've lied. I've thought things that were terrible and awful things. I have done things that, that would make like people in the room blush. Like I've, I've done terrible, awful, terrible things. I've sinned against a holy God. I've cheated. I've lied. I've done so many things against God and I deserve to spend eternity in hell. But now he looks at me like he looks at Jesus. That's who we are. He sees us as if we've never sinned. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. This means, I get this, this is the most important part of the message. This means that you no longer have to pay for your sin. That's what you were going to do for eternity in hell. That's all you can do is hell. in hell is pay for your sin. That's what you were going to do for all of eternity. And then Jesus, in a moment on the cross, paid for every sin you've ever done and will do. And so you no longer have to pay for that sin. Which in turn means that that person that wronged you doesn't have to pay for your sin. People are going to fail you. People are going to do terrible, awful things to you. And, and you know what that means? When you respond in anger, it doesn't give us an excuse, but when you, when you mess up, like I do every day, you know what that means? It means it's paid for. That means that that person doesn't have to pay for it. And we can spend our whole life saying, man, it's because of my wife. Like, if my wife wasn't the way that she was, I wouldn't struggle with this. And if my husband would just do, just do things around the house, then I wouldn't have to struggle with anger so much. And if my kids would just do what they're supposed to do and not be so disrespectful to me, man, I, I wouldn't have this problem. If my parents would just get off my back, I'd stop being so disrespectful to them. 
really what we want is for that person to pay for our sins. Problem is, is they've already been paid for. And so you accuse, is saying, like, hey, if it wasn't for this person, then I wouldn't do this. Like, I want them to pay for my sin. What you're saying is that Jesus wasn't enough. And the Bible's pretty clear that he was. Jesus paid it all, so we're free to forgive. We're free to stop sinning. We're free to stop living in victimhood. And so what these verses show us that help us with victim mentality is they cause you to admit that you're guilty. You're guilty before a holy God. And that means that terrible things might happen to you. People might abuse you. People might take advantage of your kindness. People in the church might hurt you. I might hurt you. But it never excuses you responding in sin. Because if you choose to respond in sin, that was your choice. We have to admit that we're guilty. Because Jesus was the only one who could pay for our sin. Father, thank you for just some time that we've been able to get around your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to admit that we're guilty. Father, help us every morning to wake up and recognize that we have failed you. And people, people might fail us. People will fail us. But God, you've paid for every sin that we've ever done. You forgave us. And so we can forgive other people without sinning against them and blaming them for our sin. Father, help us to own our sin. Help us not to be like Adam and Eve in the garden, blaming everybody else for our sin, but help us to be like David, where he said, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Father, thank you for all you do for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.